Now I wonder if you've ever had a situation like this. You're in a car, someone's in the driver's seat, someone's in the passenger seat, and you're going somewhere that you've not been before. A junction comes up and there's a disagreement. Why are you turning right? You need to be turning left. No, it's not left, it's right. No, right takes you the wrong way. Why are you still turning right? Didn't you hear what I said? It's left. It's not left, it's right. Well, I'm the one with the map. Well, I'm the one with the driving, uh, driving the car. Does it sound familiar? Nobody likes being told, do they, that they're wrong. And nobody being li- likes really being told what to do. We don't like people having authority over us. It's an interesting part of the human condition that when somebody tells you to do something, often it has the opposite effect, doesn't it? It actually makes you not want to do those things. Who do they think they are telling me what to do? Who do they think they are telling me which way to go? Who do they think they are telling me how it's done? We can all have thoughts like that sometimes, can't we? It all comes down to issues of authority and identity. Who are they to tell me to do something? What gives them the right? And let's face it, even when they do have a right to tell us what to do, we still don't really like it, do we, often, doing what they say. Well, that issue of authority is interwoven through this section of Mark's Gospel that we're looking at. Jesus has just begun to preach, and he has told his hearers to repent and believe in the Gospel, to turn from their old ways and trust in Jesus for their standing before God. That's what we were learning last week. But who is Jesus to tell us what to do? What gives him the right to boss me about, so to speak? What's so special about him? Well, we're going to see that Jesus has tremendous authority, not just to teach, but over the things that assault us and oppress us day by day, over evil, over sickness. And we're going to see that these things point to his true identity as God himself in human form. So first of all, we see authority over truth. Have a look with me again at verses 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. As Jesus teaches, the crowds are amazed at Jesus' authority in teaching. Jesus doesn't teach like everyone else, he teaches with authority. Now the culture of Jesus' day was that teachers would generally depend on what had been said before. Nobody was allowed to say something new. You had to appeal to something that had already been said. So think of it, if you've ever done like an academic essay where you have to quote your sources, or uh, if you've ever um, looked on Wikipedia and there's those little things telling you where the things have come from. They sort of did that all the way through their talks. But not so with Jesus. He speaks with his own authority. I mean, think about it. It's not even thus says the Lord... When he speaks, it's thus says me, says Jesus. So think about the Sermon on the Mount. You'll find the verses on the back of your notice sheet. Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or Matthew 5, 38 to 39. 
You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Do you notice how Jesus speaks there? He doesn't say, this is what you've heard, but God really meant it this way. He says, but I tell you. As if that's enough from his own authority. It's like that fallback position of all parents. Do you know what I mean? Why should I eat my broccoli? Because it's good for you. But why? Because we've already paid for it. But why? Because I say so. That's the fallback of all parents, isn't it, in the end? Because I say so. And that's how Jesus teaches and preaches. Now, I would not get away with that on a Sunday morning, nor would I expect to. I think I could get away with, because the Bible says so, but not because I say so. My authority on a Sunday morning comes from God's word. If it's not in here, I'm not really supposed to be saying it, am I? I can't speak with my own authority. But Jesus does. He speaks with his own authority. You see, for me, you'd be saying, well, who is this guy to tell me what to do? But that's exactly the point with Jesus, isn't it? Who is he? To teach with personal authority, you need to have personal authority. You need to be able to say, thus says me. When Jesus teaches, that's what he does. He teaches as though he's the boss. Because he is the boss. He teaches with God's authority because he is God. I laugh sometimes when people tell me that they like Jesus' teaching but they don't think that he's God. Because if Jesus taught the way that he did and he taught the things he did without being God, actually he'd be one of the most arrogant people alive, wouldn't he? Or one of the most arrogant people who ever lived. I mean, could you imagine? You see what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Gives you a Bible quote... And then says, but I tell you. That would be incredibly arrogant, wouldn't it? Unless he was God. And actually he spends a huge amount of his time teaching about who he is. Think of all the I am statements from John's Gospel. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. Those are not good teaching if they're not true, are they? You'd be the ramblings of a crazy narcissist, wouldn't it? I am the light of the world. But Jesus teaches with authority. And they're amazed at it. Even in verse 27, after he's done the next miracle, they still seem to be amazed by his teaching. Even after what's coming next. But his teaching is not the only thing that they're amazed at. Secondly, he has authority over evil. Have a look at 23 to 27. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you come to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. As Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, a voice calls out of the blue. What have you come to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And it's a man possessed by an unclean spirit, or an evil spirit, or a demon. All names for the same thing. 
Now, as we talked about teaching and truth, that's sort of in our comfort zone, isn't it? We know what we're talking about with this. Demon possession, I would say, is not something that we're comfortable about generally as subjects go. It's not something in your everyday conversation, is it? It sounds a bit weird. It sounds a bit medieval. It sounds a bit primitive or embarrassing. You know what I mean? We're more in the realm of sort of horror fiction often when we're talking about this than historical fact. But we're not the Sadducees in the Bible who didn't believe in angels and spirits. We're Bible-believing Christians. And whilst it's weird, we need to come to terms with what's happening here. Four things that we know about what's going on. Firstly, it's not the Bible's way to talk about mental illness. That's not what's going on here. I sometimes hear this banded about that, you know, they, they didn't know about mental illness in those days, so they just put it down to demons. But the person in our passage is not mentally ill. He has supernatural knowledge of who Jesus is. And that seems common with evil spirits. If you look down to verse 34, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So it seems this was common with these people and that would not be the case with mental illness. And that at least should give us some confidence that the Bible does not have some embarrassing primitive idea about mental illness that it's the same thing as demon possession. The Bible has other terms for talking about people who are mentally ill. So that's the first thing we know. It's not about mental illness. The second thing is that they're not all that common, demon possessions. If this were primitive beliefs, you'd sort of expect to find more of them in the Old Testament, wouldn't you? Because it's older. But they're barely mentioned there. There's one in Judges, though it's a bit ambiguous. And there's one where Saul gets one and throws spears at David. That's it. If you put aside the Gospels for a few seconds as well, they're barely mentioned in the New Testament. They get a few mentions in Acts, a couple of mentions in the Letters, and a couple of mentions in the Book of Revelation. There's no instructions on what to do if someone has an evil spirit, and they're just sort of there on the fringes, on the edges of things. It seems that there's a flurry of them as Jesus starts his ministry, trying to bring him down. But when that fails, they almost seem to tail off. In the West, this is something now that is uh, a very, very rare. I've not come across one. But I think partly, part of the issue is that the main obstacle for the gospel in the West is actually a disbelief in the supernatural. I think actually the devil would be sort of giving the game away if we saw this all the time, wouldn't he? And I think they can be more common in other parts of the world. But it seems the devil made his biggest play when Jesus was around, as you'd expect. That's where he sort of musters his forces and tries to take on Jesus. So they're not all that common, even in the Bible. The third thing we see is that they oppose God and the things of God. Think about what we see in our passage. Where is the person with the unclean spirit? He's in a synagogue. That's a bit of a surprise for a start, isn't it? What is Jesus trying to do in that synagogue? He's trying to teach. And that's when the evil spirit steps up, isn't it, you notice? Immediately the evil spirit comes in. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to derail Jesus when he's teaching. Now we think of evil spirits and we often, we've been sort of fed images by horror movies, haven't we? Spinning heads and green goo and, and levitation. But none of that stuff's in the Bible. The evil spirits here are to stop Jesus doing what he's come to do. More of that in our last point. 
the demonic doesn't have to uh, come in to the things that we see, the sort of crazy stuff. The devil can work in distraction, in discouragement, in trying to derail God's purposes. Think about Jesus' ministry. Jesus at one point called Simon Peter, who we met last week, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. When is it? It's when Peter tries to tell him that he doesn't have to go to the cross. When he rebukes Jesus for talking about the fact that he's going to die. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled is not convincing the world he doesn't exist. It's convincing you that you've never met him and you wouldn't, you'd know if you met him. That it would be like a horror movie. Not realising that he and his minions are in the boring details of life. Trying to interfere with you reading your Bible or praying or coming to church or telling your friends about Jesus doesn't sound as spectacular as the horror movie, but the devil wants you to think, well, unless it's that, it's not the devil at work. So actually, we see there that what they're really about is opposing God and the things of God in all sorts of different ways. And the last thing we see is that they are nowhere near a match for Jesus. Nowhere near. Do you notice here the demon tried to disrupt the meeting? Now, the thing that will get Jesus killed... Is claiming to be the Messiah. What does he disrupt the meeting with? He cries out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He tries to give the game away. So what happens now? Does Jesus get out his wooden snake? Or, or some holy water to sort of throw it in? Or uh, does he start speaking in Latin? Because apparently that's the language that demons speak if you ever watched one of those movies. Uh, don't know why. No. If this were a horror movie, it would be as low budget as you could get, wouldn't it? Jesus just speaks to him. He tells the demon to be quiet and come out of him. And the guy shudders a bit, convulses, cries out, and the demon comes out. There's no contest. There's no battle. Jesus tells him to come out, and the demon has no choice. Jesus' authority is such that even the spiritual forces of evil cannot disobey him. Like David versus Goliath, it looks like there's this huge match going on, but actually it's over before it begins. A word from Jesus fells this demon. But why does that matter? Well, because evil is something that we face every day. There's great evil in our world. We see war, we see oppression, we see lives destroyed. If Jesus is powerless against evil, we may as well give up now. But he's not. Jesus brings us real hope of an end to all these things. When Jesus promises that he will return and put an end to evil, we can trust him. He's demonstrated his incredible authority over the worst kinds of evil, even spiritual forces of evil. We can trust him that in one day he will end evil. But evil isn't the only thing that assaults us in life, is it? So we need to see as well our third point. Jesus has authority over sickness. Have a look at verses 28 to 34. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came up and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, 
They brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And we all know the dangers of sickness now, don't we? If we haven't had it drilled into us the last 19 months, we definitely know the dangers of sickness. And in those days, there was no NHS, there were no vaccines, there was no paracetamol even. A fever really could kill you. It's a life-threatening condition. And in the face of it, you were powerless. There was nothing you could do. But not Jesus. He takes her by the hand to help her up, and instantly she's healed. Again, no crazy rituals, no fallings over, no holy water or any of that stuff. Jesus is in absolute control. And she's healed. So she gets on and serves them. <coughs> Saved to serve, as the old saying goes. But it also shows that she's not half healed. You know, when you've had a flu or something like that, it could take you days, darling, to get over it. But here she is instantly able to get up and serve them. And it's not just her. When the sun goes down and the Sabbath is over, the Jewish day starts at the end of the day for us, and not a sundown, not a sunrise. The whole town comes out, and Jesus heals all who need healing. He casts out demons, and the whole town is looking on. And again, you notice, Jesus silences the demons. He's not going to be sponsored by them. He's going to tell people who he is as he preaches and teaches. He's not going to let them define who he is. He's not going to let the demons be involved at all. Jesus has total authority over what's happening here, including sickness. But what has that got to do with us? Does this mean that Christians should expect not to get sick? Or if they do, that they should expect healing? Not always, no. We do believe, don't we, that God can heal. We pray for people who are sick for healing. And it seems that that praying for people is the norm in scripture. In James, people are told to call the elders of the church to come pray for people if they're ill. But God doesn't always heal, nor does he promise to always heal. In Jesus' actions, we get a glimpse of what is to come. A world with no evil, a world with no disease. We're going to see this in Jesus' miracles, that he paints a picture of this wonderful world that is coming, that he's bringing. But that world isn't now. Until Jesus comes again, we live in a world of death, disease and disaster. There may be glimmers of the world to come that sort of sneak through from time to time. When we do see illnesses healed, when we do see evil overcome, but they're not promised to us. Not in this time, in this life. But it is still okay to pray for them. People in the Bible pray for them. So the reason this account is here is to show us that Jesus will do what he says. But it's that day when he returns, just like with evil, he'll end sickness. He has the authority to do it. It's not difficult for him. Now Jesus has been going around doing some of these great things, hasn't he? He's been healing the sick. He's been casting out demons. This is the beginning of his ministry. What sort of ministry will he have? Is it going to be Jesus the preacher? Or Jesus the exorcist? Or Jesus the healer? Well, our last point shows us that Jesus is quite clear 
about what he's come to do, even there's all that sort of authority. So our last point, the priority of preaching. Have a look at verses 35 to 39. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I have come. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. It would be very easy, wouldn't it, with all the amazing stories to get caught up in all the miraculous things that are happening. Jesus' fame is spreading, but it's spreading as a miracle worker, as a healer. But that's not why Jesus came. There's a real danger that Jesus' mission could be derailed by his own popularity, so to speak. You can imagine the pressure, can't you? You know, the disciples get together, they've been doing some market research. You know, Jesus' people are loving the healings, they're loving the miracles. You could be the most popular miracle worker ever. Food miracles. They really like food miracles, you should do some more of those. You have a huge following. Maybe lay off the preaching and teaching a bit. Could upset some people. Don't want to put people off, do you? We laugh, don't we? But we know those conversations have happened through the years at churches, don't we? Different circles pull in different directions, don't they? People love the music. Let's just focus on that. People love the social action. Let's focus on that. People love the miracles. Let's focus on that. Give the people what they want. But Jesus is clear. His priority is to preach. And sometimes that isn't what people want. In John's Gospel, it shows us that after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had loads of followers. But when he started teaching them, he was left with just a handful. You see, we can make ourselves popular as a church. We can be loving and caring in the community. We can do all sorts of things. But if we stop preaching and teaching the word, then we've lost. However many people are sat here on a Sunday morning, we've lost. I was chatting to someone a few months ago who goes to a church where preaching is not the priority. Uh, it's just a, a few thoughts after a packed program of other things. She was really excited that her friend was coming to church after she'd invited her. And a thought went through my mind. I wish I'd said it now, but it only went through, you know, it sort of goes through and you wish afterwards you'd said it. But I thought, what to hear? What to hear? Great that they're coming to church, but what are they going to hear when they get there? Is it going to change their life? Is it going to call them to faith and repentance? Are they going to hear about Jesus who died on the cross for their sins? Even if they became a regular at that church, what would that even mean? Would they ever hear the gospel? Even if I were a believer, would that help me keep going in my faith? Would that help me keep trusting in Jesus? Jesus' priority was to preach. He could have spent his time healing. He could have spent his time casting out demons. And he did those things as well. We see that, don't we, as the need arose. We see that in verse 39. But he came to preach and teach the gospel. Why? Because we need teaching. We need to hear the gospel. Romans 10, 14. How then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We tend not to like preaching and preachers in our culture, do we? If something's a bit preachy, that's not generally a compliment, is it, if someone says that? And it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. It's part of our nature as human beings. We do not like authority. But preachers will tell us what to do. Jesus did it last week. He gave us the facts, the kingdom is at hand, and then he told us what to do, repent and believe in the gospel. And we need to decide on the basis of what Mark is showing us, does this man have the authority to tell us what to do? It's not so much who do you think you are, but who do you say I am? Is he the Christ, the son of the living God? And from what Mark has shown us so far, I think we have to say an emphatic yes. So yes, he does have the authority to tell us what to do. Which means when he says turn left, we turn left. When he says repent and believe, we repent and believe. And when he tells us that priority is preaching, the priority is preaching, even if that makes us unpopular. So is preaching a priority in our lives? Both hearing preaching... And also in speaking to others. How could we make it more so? We don't want to end up like one of those stubborn drivers, do we? Sort of, you you turn left. No, you turn right. We need to do what Jesus says and trust him for who he is. Let's pray. Father God, help us. We pray to submit to Jesus' authority. Father, we know, we confess that as human beings, we don't like people telling us what to do. But Father, we know that Jesus has the right. We know that Jesus cares for us and has our best needs at heart. So help us, Father, to live for him. Help us, Father, to hear him preach in the words of scripture and do what he says. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.